everybody and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name is Billy. We are back and we're going to go straight in to what happened on this day in film and television history. Um, two very different films were released on this day in different years. So in 1936, Modern Times, written and directed by Charlie Chaplin, was released. Great film. Still funny. I've enjoyed it on more than one occasion. In 1944, Captain America, the serial film, was premiered, starring Dick Purcell, and that was the first appearance of a Marvel superhero outside of a comic. What do you say to that? Well, in the case of the Captain America thing, I, I had no idea that the superheroes on screen were introduced visually that early, mm. like all the way back in the mid 1940s i thought that was something that came many decades later i mean not you know iron man was the first sort of major hollywood um uh marvel film of the the new century the new millennium but i i didn't realize they were going back as far as the 40s but it kind of makes sense for captain america because he was a propaganda symbol i think it's easy to forget that his origin story in um the chris evans film was quite cleverly tied in with the origins of the comic series because the first issue of Captain America has him punching Hitler in the face. He was like a propaganda <laughs> Yeah. He was like a proper propaganda figure in and that is the right time period for that. So um it's quite interesting how he has come out of propaganda into this cinematic universe so yeah it's an interesting one <laughs> yeah and how a lot of the modern day superheroes and are, are now a more holistic and, and universal symbol for kind of solidarity and, and the best of humanity and sort of um helping each other and companionship and camaraderie whereas you know originally what, what one of the key ones started out w with was just like kind of blindly trying to ensnare and influence you know soldiers for conscription america getting them into america fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> cue the cue the team america exactly. world please uh, you know i actually watched that not that long ago um for the first time in full ever and laughed pretty much is, all the way through it is it's one of a kind it is truly outrageous oh my god there's that 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 Broadway number they sing about it's like a it's a riff on Rent, <laughs> and I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically they're just singing on stage about having AIDS, and I was just oh like, this gosh. is so terrible, but I cannot stop <laughs> belly laughing. <laughs> oh god, it's been a long time since I've seen it. It's like, oh, but still like, oh, poor taste intensified. <laughs> Yeah, it's it really is one of those things that just sort of encapsulates the term poor taste. Mm -hmm. And actually really funny because, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's brand of comedy was so kind of smart smart in its satire and just take brutal takedowns of celebrity culture, but also, you know, so crude and gross out, like, in the extreme. And then you have something, like you say, like Modern Times, which to me is just one of the pinnacles of physical comedy. Not necessarily physical comedy in terms of slapstick, even though slapstick is there, but it just kind of in choreography, you know, there's that. I mean, it looks 
so much more dangerous and daring than it actually is because of the way they've kind of positioned the background and the parts of the set to make it look like he's really high up, but actually he's not high up at all. You know, the scene where he's doing the the one-footed kind of rollerblading Mm -hmm. along that sort of upper tier of the library, and he's just kind of always just skirting the edge of the platform. And what they've done is they've, you know, positioned this sort of backdrop of books cleverly so that it looks like you know when you oh, sort of superimpose it that it looks like he's like way up but actually it's like he's barely off the ground in reality um which is just super smart from a production design and staging standpoint but also just 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 incredible choreography on you know charlie chaplin's part to be able to just pull off that kind of beat of you know almost it's making comedy that's like a dance and also just the, the bit where he's he's getting caught in the cogs of the machine. It's like he's kind of embedded in the set design. Just stuff like that that just to me is some of like the smartest sequences of physical comedy like ever put on screen. And like, you know, if you haven't seen Modern Times, you know, it is one of the is one of the great comedies of all time, silent or talking. Oh yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I love silent comedies. I love trying to figure out how all the stunts were done. I like watching Buster Keaton and things like that. Um, in my early film school days, I was obsessed. I was so obsessed that one of my early like um, projects at uni was to do like a short film style, like silent film thing. I loved it. I love stuff like that. I'm trying to figure out all the the camera trickery and things. Yeah, that is like all the ugh, good stuff. All the tricks that that were just like, you know, just purely based off ingenuity rather than any form of like CGI or green screen. And like, can you imagine trying to get a risk assessment approved (laughs) for like a a silent movie shoot? Oh my God, there's that that famous, you couldn't, you literally couldn't do it. You like, you would have, you actors would be killed. Mm -hmm. There there would be so many on set accidents, it would be unreal. Like, how the studios let them do it is actually kind of remarkable. But, you know, different time. But like, there's that famous shot of Buster Keaton sort of sitting and just went, you know, I'm just going to stand here. And I'd eat, and the house, front of the house sort of gets detached mm-hmm. and falls on him, but the window kind of perfectly goes over him. And he just kind of had to eyeball it and go, so I think, you know, the window, the gap where I should be is going to be here. And had he misjudged it at all, he would have been killed. <laughs> it's just, it's mental, isn't it? Actually insane. Just completely flattened, my God. But just like props to those artists, man. You know, they they put modern sort of they almost put modern stunt art. It's a shame. <laughs> I mean, talking about like uh, modern times as a comedy, we were gonna talk a little bit about the Marvel cinematic universe, but I now think since talking that I've got a more interesting topic of debate in my in my mind. And that's kind of about how comedy tastes have changed over the years. We touched on it a little bit with Mean Girls. Um, and the fact that the old Mean Girls has maybe a bit of a different sense of humour to the new Mean Girls, and that therefore the story doesn't quite work in the same way as it did in 2004. And just now with like talking about the A-Team and things, you know, that that would never get made today. <laughs> it just <laughs> simply would not. Um, you know, I mean, that there's still an appetite for that kind of comedy. You've got South Park and things like that. But what is it? Um, you know, how has comedy evolved? Do we approve how comedy's evolved? Like, where, where is the line for these things? When, when does it stop being 
funny. I think it's it's a really difficult. I wrestle like with this myself quite often uh, when I'm watching stuff that I find funny, especially if it's kind of like that edgy humor. I'm like, oh, I laughed. Why did I laugh? And I'm just wondering if you have any like, do you think the same thing when you're watching like older comedies and things? Do you just forgive it because it's older? Um, so like, if you were to watch, if someone made the A Team now. And it was exactly the same when you went along to watch it in the cinema. Would you think differently of it as to how you feel about it, watching it in your living room, knowing that it's from a while ago? Yeah, it's a tricky one because, you know, I think about, you know, like old Mel Brooks comedies like Blazing Saddles mm. that just like feature rampant like racial slurs and all that sort of thing that just make you go oh my god this would uh, this would get eviscerated by social media and the court of public opinion today but then again you know one of the the lead actor who's getting all the abuse thrown at him in that film was black and apparently he was you know in the writing of the film he was very much you know pushing that and was very much in and constructing the jokes as well so you kind of i do think there's a bit of nowadays with people you know being as hyper aware as they are of what the rhetoric we're sort of, sort of um using around sort of social issues and different minorities of people you know i think that's by and large a good thing that we're being that considerate of things i do think it kind of leads to you know it can lead to some people who aren't maybe from that group sort of become becoming offended on on part of the people who are being satirized in a certain group whereas those people might actually watch the film and go, that's a very funny take on our own cultural makeup. So it's kind of, it's difficult to know where the line of criticising something and kind of just sort of stepping back and going, oh, you know, that's, I might not quite understand the humour in the way it's intended in the same way that others do. It's so hard because like comedy is more than I think any other genre is a product of the cultural sort of zeitgeist that was sort of prevalent at the time. And and some of those issues, you know, are still kind quite universal now, and will always kind of be able to be returned to because of the sort of the the universality of the theme. You know, you think about something like Jojo Rabbit from a few years ago. Mm. You know, that the idea of war will always be sort of a ever present one that can be returned to and sort of filtered through different lenses. I know a lot of people sort of had varying different opinions on the way that film characterised the young boy's relationship with Hitler. I um, loved that film. I love that film too. I think, and I think part of the reason that works is because there is such, that it is obviously taking a very, very dark and serious issue and filtering it through a very, very irreverent lens. And, but there is very, very heavy pathos and very sort of clear acknowledgement of the extent of the suffering and the issues that are, tackled in it later on in the film with you know a certain a certain character's you know death but um and how that affects others in the cast but um but and again things like you know there are some topics that are always just going to be touchy and you know whether or not we're doing them now or decades ago is kind of you know is going to be you know by and by you know it's things like life of brian you know <laughs> you could Life, you could do Life of Brian now. You could do Life of Brian at any time, and people would complain about Life of Brian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I think it's it's also kind of thinking, you know, what is the it's thinking about the tone of the comedy as well. 
you know, I look at some stuff in South Park and I go, that is gut-bustingly funny because that is just a really no-holds-barred, takes-no-prisoners takedown of a very, very shallow and not very likeable public figure who's just, like, spewing a lot of, like, bullshit online. And they deserve to be kind of taken down. But there's... But sometimes the way in which they do it with certain people takes into... They do it by, like, inventing these... I think there's this there's this one joke that sort of comes to mind in one episode that I just saw in a cursory fashion on TV one time, where I think it's Steven Spielberg and they and it might be Robert Zemeckis or another or another famous director, and um, it involves mm-hmm. it's sort of, they do a riff on a scene from The Accused, you know, the Jodie Foster film about the woman that gets sexually assaulted, and I just think that. I'm, yeah, I know, <laughs> and I'm just I'm all for people, you know, taking down, you know, others, you know, in comedy, you know, that's what satire is all about. And we should be able to poke fun and laugh at each other. But sometimes the scenario with which they invent to do that sometimes, you know, incorporates some actions and some behaviour that I don't really think should be joked about in such a flippant sense, because they do kind of cause you know outward mm-hmm. suffering for a lot of people in a very real sense in reality. So I think it's you know. It's it's a combination of social context, what the issue is. I think the tone of it and what you're trying to achieve with the joke, you know, is it just purely just mean-spirited uh, jabbing and, make, and mockery? Or, or is it uh, a sort of an examination of what we're going to, of trying to un, unpick or unpack a sector of society or a behaviour that we all have that maybe deserves some reflection in the interest of changing that for the better. I kind of feel a similar way. I think it sometimes it depends on the day, <laughs> Matt. Like sometimes I'll watch something and I'm like, oh, that really doesn't work. And that um I tell you what, I've actually been watching as an example, I'm I'm a big Tina Fey fan, right? I I think she's fantastic. I love mean girls. And I I've been going back and watch rewatching 30 Rock which is a, a great show. There are some jokes in there that have aged like milk. <laughs> um, but a lot of kind of, and, and this is something that has happened quite a bit in her comedy, where there, there are quite a few race jokes that don't necessarily land. But I also know that Donald Glover was a writer on 30 Rock, but it's not, you know, just because he was a writer on 30 Rock doesn't mean that all of the race jokes were written by him, if you know mm. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Those were <laughs> like exclusively. That doesn't, that doesn't excuse, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's it, it's an interesting one because in many ways it doesn't work and it's cringy. But in some ways it kind of, it creates a very unique environment <laughs> or a very unique feel to the, to the comedy that is just so bizarre. I really can't, I, I can't describe it. Have you seen it? Have you watched 30 Rock? I've never actually watched 30 Rock. It's, it's, it's a comedy that has uh, evaded me over the years. But um, I think it's also important to kind of go, you know, just because a couple jokes are a lit, 
you know, not every joke in, you know, it's, it's a very rare comedy that where every joke lands perfectly, absolutely mm. all the way through. So I, th- I think it's important just to like not completely write off an entire film. Oh, yeah, no, I'm just not because writing of it off. I'm, no, no, I know, I know I'm that, still I know enjoying people who it. I'm, yeah, I'm still, I'm still very much enjoying it. I think I just find it interesting that these jokes are getting it into the show quite frequently. And some of them hit. And some of them don't. And I'm just wondering, like, did who wrote the joke contribute to whether or not it hits and misses? Or is that a bit deductive to even imply that, you know, um, who wrote the joke makes that much of a difference? Um, yeah, it is, it is an interesting one. How much does artist intent uh, reframe the con- and context, like kind of reframe the impact of a joke or if we just, or should we just purely take it at face value on paper on screen and go yeah that just doesn't work <laughs> i do find myself getting fatigued by like edgy comedy though it was massive in the early 2000s and some of it is funny but i'm like small doses i have to do it in small doses um when um <clears throat> there was a i don't know if you ever watched any big mouth on netflix I got really into it in uni when it came out. It felt like it was it was like the new edgy cartoon, you know, is it for adults? Is it for kids? Like, it's definitely not for kids, but it, it looked like it could be. And um, a lot of it was very funny. And I think the first couple of seasons, I, I thought it was hilarious. It's like one of the funniest comedies to come onto Netflix. But then as time goes on and they just kept, pushing I don't know it it just I got fatigued by it I couldn't watch more than like one episode sitting I know some people could binge that kind of stuff but I really can't I think it starts grating on me <laughs> after a little while um same with same with Family Guy in South Park like I'm like one episode's enough I can't like watch a lot of it yeah I used to um I think because I, I used to binge Family Guy so much back in the day but I think just now because I think because I just think it's a shell of its former self and it's later seasons, it just needs to end. And also because, you know, social media and stand-up comedy and all that stuff is so saturated with really close-to-the-bone controversial humour. And I love a close-to-the-bone joke as much as the next person. You know, Frankie Boyle, Jimmy Carr, uh, Kevin Bridges, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I love that kind of stand-up. But at the same time, you know, if you don't have light and shade or kind of variation in your sort of style of joke, it, it does just kind of become tiresome. You know, you think about a show like Sex Education, which thrives partially on crude humour. Um, with that, I just, me and my mum and dad still refer to that opening scene of season two as being one of, if not the f- single funniest scene in any TV show we've ever watched. <laughs> um, in, in the car, oh my God, you just, I just yeah. I've just never laughed like that. I think at anything ever, um, but that's, but as we've talked about, you know, before you and me on previous sort of podcasting ventures we've done, um, that show has an amazingly open and warm and empathetic view of sex and relationships, and a really well developed cast. Like it really thrives on its more emotive drama sections as well. So again, you have that light and shade that kind of balances out the crudeness of the humour in certain scenes. There's also things, we're going to wrap this up soon, um, but I, I just thought in my head, um, The Office as well, The British Office, 
Whereas the jokes are close to the bone. Like it is cringy. It's hard to watch, but that lends a kind of realism to it Mm. that kind of helps the show in that way, because the whole, to me, the joke of the office, one of the reasons why I like the British one as much as I do is that kind of, it's so painful because it feels so real. Mm. And these scenarios feel accurate, especially to the time period, you know, the sexism, the, the racism, you know, the, the thinking that uh, the boss who thinks he's a jokester and things like that. There's just, there's just so many little truths in it that it kind of, I haven't really watched much of the American one, but that makes it a different show completely to take that away. And I think part of the reason why it works so much for me is the fact that it feels like a real office. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But my mum always said that she thought the, she's generally not, a fan of Ricky Gervais as a stand-up, but she says she she just thinks his written on-screen comedy series, you know, fictional comedy series, are just are so well observed about how we actually mm-hmm. behave. She said the office she thought was genius because it's if you've ever worked in an office, it's just like that. If you're from like a certain era, because you know, with some of the things you're saying there, I would. I mean, I've worked in an office the past couple of years in my production management TV role, and. I would kind of hope hope that I wouldn't see all the truths in the office um, in my time you know, working in an office. But I, um, but she said, you know, working in an office, you know, sort of early to mid late nineties, you know, you there's a lot of accuracy in it. Yeah, definitely. So I think you need that humour sometimes. I think it's necessary when you're kind of establishing a time and a place. Um, you know, when things weren't the same as they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting, to, and getting so to the heart of yeah. why, why that behaviour wasn't okay then and why we can kind of laugh at it now. Okay, we're going to move on now to our first review, and that is American Fiction. This is one of the Oscar-nominated films this year. It was uh, toted as one of Barack Obama's top films of... Was it one of his top films of the year? Was it one of his top books? It was based on a book, wasn't it? Yes, he he listed. No, he did unlist American Fiction as one of his favorite films of the year. Nice, which is high praise indeed. To be honest, I'm I'm kind of like if you've got five stars from Barack Obama on your poster, I'm like mm, maybe this is worth watching. <laughs> yeah. Barack um, Obama so- approval plus five Academy Award nominations. It's uh, it's, a, it's, a he- <laughs> it's a heavyweight. Mm, it's definitely got the accolades behind it, but does it deserve them? So. Billy, this is one of the few Oscar picks that you haven't been able to see until now. What did you make of it? Do you think it deserves to be up there on the Oscars list? And um, yeah, tell us all about it. Yeah, so based on a 2001 novel by uh, Percival Everett called Erasure and nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, Best Leading Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Original Score. American Fiction is a satirical comedy uh, revolving around um, a writer played by Jeffrey Wright called uh, a, a joke that I found instantly very, very funny. Um, Th- Thelonious Monk Ellison. His surname is Ellison, but they all call him Monk as in Thelonious Monk, the famous African-American <laughs> musician, which, you know, I just got a kick out of that irreverent tone of the humour already. He plays a very intelligent, a very academically minded American-American 
upper class uh, writer and professor situated in Los Angeles. His novels receive a lot of academic praise, but um, but they sell poorly. He's not what one would call a commercially successful writer or one that um, reaches a very wide mainstream audience. And his um, his latest manuscript is manuscript has just been rejected by his publisher for not being quote unquote black enough. You know, there's a lot of you know very sort of sanitized white sort of demographic in the popu- American population who wants sort of fiction, at least in this world, that's built out of a lot of you know African American stereotypes. Um, Monk attends a book reading for a fellow uh, black author who reads this book called <laughs> We Lived in the Ghetto, which just is absolutely, <laughs> which is a hilarious title, which is absolutely just riddled with the most egregious black stereotypes you can possibly think of. And yet the entire room, mostly full of white people, you know, stands up and applauds when she reads the most bastardised, you know, reading out of this, out of this book. And he is kind of disenchanted and disenfranchised with the state of the literary industry and the sort of the the commodification of black African American stereotypes um, in his day and age. And as a joke, he does his own sort of riff on this. He writes a book called My Pathology, the, you know, the F instead of the TH, and just kind of go, oh, I bet the publisher's going to eat this up. And, you know, to his kind of expectation is you know, meeting his expectations, they do do that. But then they go, it's going to be the next big thing. We want to like, you know, totally, you know, push this and make this going to be a bestseller and everything. And it becomes wildly successful. And he's kind of sort of caught in this whirlwind of, you know, trying to make an observational joke about the state of the way African-American stories are used in literature, but then actually sees a lot of career success that he hasn't seen up until this point doing so. So a very kind of smart and very irreverent premise that I can get on board with very easily. And I think what sets this apart structurally from other recent satirical comedies I've seen is that we're not immediately hit with that central conceit, kind of the birth of the plot centrepiece, um, or snide kind of Jason Reitman style voiceover world building. Um, in the vein of like something like "Thank you for smoking" or "Up in Up in the Air," you know, in those films, you know, we're we're kind of hit with the the central character's sort of mean sort of viewpoint of the world, and also all the sort of weird goings on of the industries they satirise right from the word go. But American fiction, it kind of takes a considerable amount of time to build out the complexities of both positive and negatives of Monk's personal life and his family life. You know, his fraught but very loving relationships, kind of unexpected tragedies the very easygoing rapport he has with his sister, which is really entertaining to watch unfold on screen. And by taking the time to kind of build out those circumstances, there's very solid character and plot justification for the act that incites much of the farcical developments that happen later on and kind of house the main commentary of the story. And it means that that comedy and exaggeration feels earned. You know, I've talked with people in the past about sort of satire being at its best and working when it's just about credible and this very much is and i think jeffrey wright's also very well cast he has kind of a dryness in his comedic delivery and a great perplexed face but he's also got kind of enough tommy lee jones tinned tinged a curmudgeon um curmudgeonliness to his personality uh that kind of makes him 
<laughs> sort of amusing to watch in that sense, but he's also got an everyman quality to kind of make Monk an enjoyably rough around the edges kind of personality. And I kind of I really appreciate the way he's written as a protagonist, you know, in satirical comedies that poke fun at one person's place in a broken system. Oftentimes, it, the central character is, a, it, to, again, to like look it up in the air and thank you for smoking. You know, Aaron Eckhart and George Clooney's characters, they're just unrepentant, morally bankrupt scoundrels, you know, who ca- callously hurt others as a result of what they're doing within that system. And then they kind of slowly learn from their mistakes and usually by way of a more affectionate character that softens their heart. And I like both those films very much. That's not like an outward criticism of them. But I love the fact that here is a really irreverent and intelligent, but also flawed protagonist who's kind of rightfully jaded with the industry he finds himself caught in, who then kind of in an attempt to make fun of it and prove a point actually creates a personal dilemma for himself and actually ends up kind of proving his point but kind of throwing himself into a difficult situation. But he isn't kind of brainwashed by the ordeal either. You know, the power doesn't go straight to his head and he becomes this kind of maniacal cartoon-esque villain. And he finds himself caught between the personal gain and the and the lunacy that he finds and clearly recognises in this scenario. You know, it's, it's really terrific and layered writing from a wider story perspective. It doesn't kind of become too lost in like kind of literary trappings either or kind of comedic jabs at the pretension of the literary world. You know, it spends a good chunk of the runtime exploring relationships with his family. And I know that that has meant for certain people it's been a little bit uneven story-wise. But what I thought that did for the comedy was it meant that it kind of subtly, not not in a heavy-handed way at all, created this sort of mirror between the more nuanced and realistic relationships between black characters and kind of the reductive stereotypes that this is, that's a, that the successful books in the film peddles. And it's kind of like kind of very, very quietly and, you know, trusting the audience enough to work, to work it out by just sort of presenting it on screen without sort of necessarily, you know, big glowing neon arrows pointing towards it going, these are actually the kind of stories that these books should be writing about. And it kind of, it keeps the events of the plot kind of and mockery kind of grounded and not super preachy. And I think it helps balance out. I think it also helps balance out the fact that the points made about diversity in the writing aren't the most expansive. I think, I think it is kind of very, some of the humor is very sharp. And I do think the screenplay is very solid overall. I wouldn't say it's the most insightful satire I've ever seen. It's kind of, you know, very sort of kind of cool and nifty sort of in the moment, but I can't say it's it's stuck with me to the degree that certain other satires, both comedic and more dramatic, have done for me in the past. But it isn't, you know, all that all that big of a deal when, you know, the, the comedy is as thoroughly enjoyable as it is. I love how, you know, irreverent the tone of the humour is, everything kind of down to the wryly, nimble and plucky jazz score and you know the polished dialogue and the more hackneyed stereotypes or the lampooning of white people's assumptions and misinterpretations of black people's behavior that's all if not the most novel it is quite well observed and um though it is all thoroughly entertaining i do think at times the kind of i almost kind of wanted you know the ludicrous nature of the book situation to like heighten to be a, just go a little bit further and heighten the delivery of the themes just a little bit more. 
you know, even going a little more abstract with the presentation of the comedy, there's kind of there's a great Roy Lane esque moment where Monk sees the scene he's writing from a novel play out in front of him. And I do wish the script and direction took more creative swings like that, rather than kind of keeping it as grounded as it does. But um, there's also a subplot involving Monk's brother's sexuality that I don't think entirely gels with the main satirical thread of the narrative, even if I can see what they were going for. And Serling K. Brown does deliver a very good performance. So I do have I do have my gripes, and if I compare it to the really big, amazing heavyweights that are all over the best picture category. It does stand out as being a little bit of an oddity. I don't think it's quite up to the quality standard of all the rest of the nominees, but I did still think this was very good. And I do like the fact very much that a African-American stereotype centric satire is getting as much awards love as it is. I would give this an A minus. It's very good. No, so we'll have to wait until Oscars, until the Oscars to find out how well it's going to do. I, I've got a feeling in my bones that this is going to do very well at the Oscars. I've, I think it's got an outside chance that it could just swoop in on a couple of things like adapted screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. From one, from American fiction to American nightmare, Badoom. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, documentary time, yes? Yes, documentary time. A true crime documentary time, which isn't a genre I typically go for. I'm generally not a fan of true, of true crime, as you know, or at least <laughs> I'm not a fan of the current wave of true crime that just seems to be flooding the airways and streaming services at the moment and kind of dominating the viewing charts over the past several years. I do feel is like a genre that was once about sort of creating um, awareness of miscarriages of justice and holding people accountable has been commodified in pretty ugly fashion kind of this into this bingeable viewing model that kind of pushes thrill-seeking conversation over what the genre was initially intended for and as a rule i tend to not endorse or engage with true crime for that reason i did however hear from some reliable sources that with that this series three-part documentary series on netflix was worth engaging in and i'm glad i did it centers around 2015 kidnapping case where a woman called Denise Huskins was kidnapped from her then boyfriend's home. They were him, her boyfriend and her were held up by three masked assailants and she was snatched from the home and he then immediately reported it to the police and the police were immediately suspicious of him. And then, you know, ransom emails started to come through and uh, the media circus and media frenzy started and everyone started thinking the worst. And then the unexpected happened. And that's all and I will say about the plot, because I I feel like this does sort of the structure of the thriller sort of structure, it does sort of thrive on you not knowing a tremendous amount about the true story. That being said, you know, what I will say is that past its what seems like its logical happy, happy conclusion, there is distrust and um, grudges and prejudices exhibited by people in power and people in you know justice departments who should not have had them and ultimately ended up damaging and peddling a lot of sort of vicious viewpoints and distrust of victims and women um, in the interest of chasing you know a story or what they thought was a lead that actually had no real evidential founding. 
Um, there are a few things for me that I feel put this, puts us above the standard sort of true crime fair. Starters, the tone has this very uneasy and kind of conniving sense of tension through the score and sort of very pointed sort of sharp delivery of the interviews that contributes to this sense that things are not as they seem. And it opts for an atmosphere of kind of brooding, impending disaster rather than kind of sensationalism and kind of all these... I mean, it does have a certain you know degree of polish in the pacing that I think you get what I kind of refer to as kind of the Netflix sheen in the documentary context. But I do think that this, the intercutting here, it doesn't nearly have the sense of sort of overblown impact that a lot of, a lot of them do. There's a, there's a sense of sort of atmosphere that, and um, sort of sinister atmosphere that I don't think always is prevalent in these kinds of films and series. And this tone then works very nicely with the show's ability to kind of wrong foot and play with your expectations, which keeps you engaged. And it's then enhanced by the very sort of taut pacing and structure of the series. We have a very tight three-act structure that is sort of housed within these three lean, but quite detailed in terms of narrative, you know, 45-minute episodes. And kind of the more propulsive pace of the series than its contemporaries in the edit with kind of the deft intercutting of reconstructions, interviews and interrogation footage means the presentation of the stories feels comprehensive, but also kind of neatly packaged and running at just the right length. You know, three parts, it does not at all overstay its welcome. And the episodes also end with these well-timed cliffhangers that kind of propel directly into the main focus of the next episode, which keeps things very much moving, which I really appreciated. You know, it doesn't get bogged down in, de- in unnecessary details like certain other documentaries do. And I think a majority of the story is related directly through interviews with those involved rather than narrator voiceover or kind of expository archive. It feels as though the voice has very much been given back to you know, the victims and the survivors of this case, which feels empowering for them and like the making of the documentary itself has been empathetic and, uh, and the filmmakers have had a lot of care towards that. This is particularly true of Denise Huskins, whose kind of main interview takes up the bulk of the, almost the entirety, actually, of the second episode. And many of the interviews, you know, they feel very emotionally raw and feature very impassioned speaking from those involved, which again makes the series feel more urgent in its messaging and more empathetic than what this genre typically offers. And thanks to it not being overly stylized, you know, outside of some slightly ill-fitting Dutch angles and some orchestral string spikes kind of on a rare occasion in the score, the framing of these people doesn't feel exploitative. I was pleasantly surprised. I thought this was a very solid piece of true crime that kind of got back to the heart of what I think this genre is about, you know, sort of pushing, putting a lens on very negative practices in sort of police and legal departments and sort of trying to ensure that we do better in the future. This was very good. It's a nice brief a very engaging watch and I would recommend I feel exactly the same about true crime in general um, there are very few that I kind of engage with, I did go through a bit of a phase of watching a lot of true crime and it does I don't know, it does something to you watching too much of it where you, you kind of get desensitised to what you're seeing and you see it more as entertainment rather than a real thing that that happened the true in the true crime kind of gets taken out of it um yeah and there's only a couple of documentaries and things that i've seen that i really thought did a good job 
um, with kind of changing that, um, changing that narrative. So I will give this, I, I, I will give this a go because I, I am, I am interested in good examples of this genre. Um, one that I would recommend. Have you seen Wild Wild Country? No, I've heard that that's a good one. It is excellent. That's on Netflix. That's like a more of a cult documentary. And it definitely has some of the um, the trappings, the true crime trappings of of stuff. But in, in the general sense, it felt more like I was learning about a world that I didn't understand beforehand. Mm. I got more of that documentary feel about it where um, in not the true crime look at what this serial killer did, you know, kind of thing, um, which is really interesting. The other one, which is really good, is um, Don't Fuck With Cats. I like that one. Yes, that one was great. Um, that one, I felt, had something different to it with the whole internet angle. Yeah, because it's kind of like, it sort of has that sort of not non-biased, kind of interesting, sort of even-handed sort of look at, the positives and negatives of sort of internet vigilantism, but also kind of tributes and sort of puts, um, you know, a very sort of supportive lens on these people who did manage to, in the end, sort of track down a killer. Yeah. So I will give this one, I will give this one a go. Um, it's a, it's a tricky genre to get right, I think. But you're you're completely correct. There is so much of it around at the moment that it's it can be easy to get lost. You can you can't see the wood for the trees. Definitely, which is why I think it's good to highlight one that you know sticks out from the rest and feels like it's is in the right place. Moving on from documentaries to sci-fi, and this is the creator. It's on Disney Plus. This came out. And there was relatively little fanfare to it. Mm. I remember seeing a few posters um, about it and being like, ooh, it's a new sci-fi. It looks very... I think the, the one thing that put me off going to see it was it looked very Star Wars. <laughs> and I was unsure at the time whether or not it was just somebody else doing Star Wars and what the actual plot was. Um but I, you know, now it's on. Now it's on streaming. I can give it a fair, give it a fair shot. So, is my fair shot worth spending on the creator? Uh, what's it about? And is it a copy of Star Wars? So I'd heard similar things about it being Star Wars esque before going in, and I, I see a little bit of where people are coming from on that. But honestly, I, I don't really think it's entirely founded. To be honest, the, what this brought for me, if anybody was Neil Blomkamp, director mm. of um, District 9, Elysium. It kind of feels like a slight, a, a grander, more epic in scope take on that kind of very grounded, scrungy, sort of dystopian-esque, um, it's kind of almost social realist take on sci-fi. And even though you can see it's in kind of indebted to some previous films, I do think it's you know kind of a minor miracle when an original science fiction IP breaks through and it's actually also good. It's kind of, it's set in uh, the future where AI has, you know, that being a very present issue now is sort of almost kind of not taken over, but it's sort of, it's people, there are AI machines now 
that are you know using technology to sort of mimic the faces of other people there's this very and sort of take on a much more human characteristic they're much they're seen as more of a presence than humans like sentient presence in society that has every bit of kind of equal weightings as you know humans and john david washington plays a government agent who loses his wife who is an android during a undercover operation he himself has had lost limbs due to injury but has had them replaced through these um, ai technology and you know Years later, he finds himself part of this sort of prejudice fueled war against AI, kind of almost. A lot of it actually takes place in, you know, a- Asian countries. And I, I don't necessarily, I don't think the sort of the, the fact that it makes your mind almost kind of spring sort of towards Vietnam is entirely an accident. I think that is intentional. And he is tasked with setting out and get, extracting this and destroying this very, Sort of world life threatening, world dominating weapon, or sort of weapon of mass destruction. And upon conducting this mission, they find out that the that the weapon is in fact a child, or an you know an AI child, sort of an android child. And then through having to sort of escape that scenario and getting to know this kid and sort of getting set on path maybe towards finding his his wife who may in fact be alive. Um, sort of starts to have a change of heart about the work he is carrying out. So so a lot of interesting ideas at play. Um, The cinematography is stunning. I was immediately struck by kind of the deep blue of the nighttime and um, sequences and the the low light sequences and how much the water and moon pops, as does a lot of the saturated colour palette. It received an Oscar nomination for its visual effects and I was very impressed by them. The design of the ships, the robots and weapons are very sleek and detailed. Um, so much so that the overall presentation of the world in dystopian cities feels very believable and seamless. And I, I really bought into this sort of future scenario. The location choices are also stellar, actually. You know, they're utilizing a lot of places in Asian countries like Thailand and Japan to contribute to the dystopian kind of otherworldly appearance. You know, a lot of these sort of like almost tropical landscapes that they're using in some of these countries. And I was able to buy into the setting very easily as a result. And, you know, like I said, some of the, you know, these very gritty, steampunk, grimy sections of dilapidated cityscapes and, you know, it's, it's a compellingly sordid view of the future and this potential war that could happen between humans and AI. It, you know, it very much reminded me of um, Neil Blancland, this kind of this grit filled technological aesthetic sort of evoked him in a very good way. There was almost this kind of one shot that to my eyes, it seems to very deliberately reference the Johannesburg occupied slum setting of District 9. And I'm a big fan of his, and I'm just kind of very gl- glad to see that that sort of um, school of sci fi filmmaking re- evoked again. I also like the fact that the, these very kind of smoothly emotive montages of family gatherings, the brutality of the soldiers', soldiers conduct in battling the AI, and the design of the androids that kind of very uniformly weave together hu- artificial and human body parts. Through all this, the film does a pretty good job of kind of visually distilling the thematic undercurrents of prejudice, imperialism, and how that clouds who the real enemy is in this conflict. Like it's not there's not a lot of like big speechifying monologues or anything. Um, to that end, the creator doesn't feel particularly disjointed in its combination of socio-political messaging and straight-up chase-centered, you know, action. But I do think you know past a certain point in the narrative, it 
whilst it isn't super polemical or heavy-handed in its messaging, which I do appreciate, I do feel at times it kind of goes too far the other way. And I think, especially towards the back end of the film, it does kind of just become a straight action film and a very you know, sort of intense, explosive, um, well-made action film. But I think it kind of, past a certain point, loses almost sight of the heady questions, kind of the, what the screenplay sort of raised earlier on. And I do think it ends up kind of feeling like the creator isn't all that expansive in its exploration of its themes in the end. And um, the kind of the road movie transporting precious cargo from the form of a person that then creates a bond for a hardened protagonist isn't all that novel, but structurally the time frame is kind of more condensed and the conflict kind of more pressure cooker. The fact that the conflict is kind of more pressure cooker in its makeup. Um, then the border crossing scope of something like The Last of Us does kind of do does do does do well for the story. And then the action is kind of brisk and crunchy enough to sustain action entertainment, you know, without the shocking brutality of something like District Nine. You know, it's it is very sort of well well made and punchy action. And I kind of thought to myself that for that reason it wasn't, you know, blowing my mind. I also thought that I also came to the conclusion that it wasn't blowing my mind because Whilst he's solid as ever in the lead role, I'm starting to notice that I haven't taken all that warmly to John David Washington. And I think it's because he's not a very emotionally expressive actor. I don't think he's he's got conviction in spades and how seriously he always sort of throws himself into a role and kind of naturally fits into that. But any real depth of emotion for me isn't all that evident from him. And I do think the dynamic between him and the child just slightly suffer as a result. Uh, so uh, I do think it, ends up not kind of reaching the lofty ambitions of its themes, but I do I did enjoy it quite a bit. And I thought it raised some interesting ideas. It had some sort of very sort of gripping um action sequences and it was very kind of visually grand in a way that I think I haven't seen from a big budget sci-fi outside of a massive franchise in a while. An interesting thing about to note about watching it on Disney Plus is that it's shot in it's shot in 276 to 1, which is ultra widescreen, um, more befitting of an IMAX cinema rather than, you know, 239 to 1, which is sort of standard sort of big letterbox widescreen. So in this case, watching the creator, it's letterboxed more than your average widescreen film, meaning so it's, it's quite long and thin. And I did think that constricted the action slightly, you know, tops of heads were starting to be cut off. But... Um, but it did also, in a sense, contribute to the grandeur of the cinematography. So another kind of minor visual gripe, but again, I kind of got used to it after a while. This was, um, this was solid. This was good. Not mind-blowing. Not going to set the world on fire, but I'm happy it exists for the sci-fi genre. The creator gets a, a B from me. And it's been a while since we've had a decent sci-fi, to be honest, that isn't one of the big franchise films. So I'm, I'm quite happy that we're you know, this film got the funding and got the backing behind it to be made. Um, I do think, you know, we have had hardened man takes child from A to B that may or may <laughs> not destroy, you know. I feel like <laughs> if, if only um, it was Pedro rather than John David Washington... <laughs> Then he would have had like get behind Pedro three of those uh, in a row, um, and I, you know, I usually like I'm kind of a sucker for those stories because I like seeing it, it's a good way to have character development, and I enjoy the humour of having like a gruff 
you know, hardened action guy having to interact with the with the kid. Um, there's just something in there that like hits my soft spot of humor and storytelling. But we have had quite a lot of it recently. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I will give this. I, I will give this a go. I I like John David Washington. I actually controversially, if, although I didn't like Tennant, I enjoyed him in Tennant. And I was kind of sad when that film, I was sad for him when that film didn't, wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be, just because I felt like his career trajectory got a bit stilted by that, because he had, he did a great performance in Black Klansman, I thought he was good in Tenant, and then he's kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. So I'm glad that he's getting, he's getting back into these roles with a, you know, a big budget sci-fi no less. Um, and I think there's definitely room for him in the, you know, the leading male, the leading man uh, lineup at the moment. I think he brings something a little bit different, but I agree that, you know, sometimes that emotional range isn't quite there. But I'd be, you know what, I'd be really interested to see him in something like a drama or even a comedy. I'd be quite interested to see him do a comedy. I think in a weird, like, straight man way, he'd be very good. Well, there are there were sort of comedic chops on display during some of the more irreverent moments in Black Klansman, so I think he can totally do it, and I would very much like to see him sort of out, out of that comfort zone and in there. Mm, definitely. Talking of comedy... Uh, so we've got our we've got our Valentine's episode next week where we're going to talk about rom coms, um, but we've got one rom com to end off uh, our episode today. This has been everywhere, and I've seen the trailer so many times when I've been to the cinema, <laughs> and honestly, it looks dreadful. So <laughs> you did tell me. I thought it did. It I looked, thought it looked dreadful as well. The trailer made it look so bad. It looked like Mills and Boone levels of <laughs> bad. Um, but yeah, please tell me what this is all about. I even made a joke last week about you can't tell me I don't do my job because I'm gonna sit. I'm gonna put myself through anyone but you. Um, and so Sydney, Sweetie, and Glen Powell very have a one night stand, um, but through a very sort of cheap. You know, vocal, verbal misunderstanding. They end up sort of hating each other and never speaking to each other again. They find that um, he is friends with her sister, and by virtue of that, end up getting invited to the same wedding, and a wedding which conveniently both of their exes show up to. And so, naturally, the only logical course of behaviour is to pretend they're together to try and take, you know. Because they don't want to have their exes, you know, slavering all over them. So, and just sort of puppy dog eyes going, get back, get back together with me. So they kind of go, oh, I can't be doing with that. Let's just pretend we're a thing, even though we hate each other, just to try and um, get through this in one piece. Uh, so I'm not, you know, that, that doesn't exactly sound, inspire glowing expectations, that premise. And there are certain things about it that I think are cheap. And I was fully expecting to go in and absolutely friggin' hate this. But whilst, again, I'm not going to give it the most glowing accolades in the world, I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised by how inoffensive I found it while it was on. 
and I, I anticipated the script being a lot more cringeworthy than this actually was. And the dialogue does actually have a somewhat sparky cutting tone to it with the various petty jabs that Central Pair throw at each other. And like, this isn't at all in the same sort of league of exp- explosive quotability or vibrant hilarity of Bottoms, Booksmart, Rylane, a big sick, you know, a lot of recent comedies, romantic and not romantic, that we've had. It was clear to me while watching this that a certain level of attention had and care had been given to infusing the conversations with some wit and some intelligence. And it does, so there is that, and some lines started off, oh, that's actually, that's, that's a little bit witty. I'm, I'm kind of getting on board with that. But it does make it a bit disappointing when the kind of script sort of punches below the belt and defaults to cheap kind of name calling. Like, there's a thing about her, really kind of, there's a running gag about her repeatedly calling him a fuckboy. And I'm just like, that's just like kind of lowest common denominator human guys, come on. And, you know, the, the film has shown that it's actually better than this. And I also could have gone my entire life without hearing the exquisite display of human poetry that is um, easy breezy Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I really did just want to howl at that given moment. I think it gave me a hernia. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I know, that's just, I thought you'd like that one. But there's also a number of you know, semi-elaborate um, <laughs> kind of multi-stage slapstick gags that again, bit more screenplay forethought than your average studio rom-com and aren't you know exaggerated to the point where they feel completely ridiculous and cringeworthy and like it makes for a decent balance between the verbal cracks and physical comedy and so Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell carry them off decently well the score is surprisingly nice like I don't normally find rom-com scores all that notable but like there's some groovy drum machines and some summery bright guitar chords that were quite charming the soundtrack features a solid selection of very befitting commercial songs the most notable of which, and I couldn't at all get through this review without mentioning this because it has been all over TikTok. I mean, I really cannot escape it through Sydney Sweeney's Instagram or TikTok. Whereas um, there's a very sort of central plot point that revolves around one of the characters connecting with the song Unwritten by Natasha Bedingfield. Oh my God. And you know what? If, if nothing else, watching anyone but you... It was a great reminder to me of how gr- wonderful that song is. Like, it's that is it's been on my Spotify on repeat. That is a deep cut. That's like, now that's what I call music 11. Oh, it you really know? is. It's I proper know. like mid, mid-2000s Ooh. pop charts all <laughs> over. And it's been in my, it's, it's been responsible for putting that song in my Spotify on repeat. And, um, and it's used quite tastefully in the film. It's not... It's got like it's actual. It's got actual plot justification and has a really fun um, credit montage of the more kind of blooperly blooper esque singing of it <laughs> at various different points in the film, which I enjoyed. I'm like, yeah, we can bring this back. This is this is cool. Sadly, you know, I, it it does have its flaws. Like, I I do take issue with the dynamic and interplay between the central pair. Like, it kneecaps a lot of the potential of the other elements of the film displayed for me. Like. Some people have cited them as having zero chemistry. I don't actually think that's true. I think there's moments of affectionate kind of breezy connection between the two of them. More often than not, though, the verbal sparring is just really awkwardly delivered. I don't think Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell ever like really settle into like the, the seemingly punchy intended rhythm of the script. It does more often feel than not like a bit stilted and like the punchlines sometimes kind of crash land. And a lot of like the delivery of the dialogue is either too stilted or chaotic in terms of performance to feel kind of to kind of na- feel natural or create the kind of seamless rapport 
you get with the best on-screen rom-com pairings. I mean, you think of how just sort of effortlessly the two leads bounce off each other with the one-liners in Rye Lane. I mean, this it just isn't even a contest. And in anyone but you, this kind of unfortunately permeates a lot of character interaction, this stiltedness, and sort of dampens the entertainment factor for me. The coincidences and misunderstandings that major plot points are founded on, again, also feel pretty cheap and like they could be resolved with just even the, an ounce of actual adult communication, which again is kind of frustrating. Though I do think the tension of whether or not the pair will end up together is decently sustained, which I do think is a key factor of making a, an effective rom-com. So again, you know, I, I was actually maybe impressed as a little strong, but I was surprised at the fact that this was almost decent. <laughs> and I was sort of f- f- fine with this being on. You know, I kind of got to the end of it and I was like, oh, you know, I don't regret watching that it- entirely. So <laughs> a-, a C plus. Like, we're going to go straight. We're going to go straight down the middle. It's fine. If you want a rom-com, you know, go ahead. You could do far worse than this. Interesting. I, I could have I put money last week on that you were going to hate this. Um, yeah, going on a rant. Yeah, three rants in a three three weeks, three rants in a row. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, th- this is, really isn't my genre either. Like, I that there are things that happen in this genre that irk me so much. So I'm not sure if you know, I probably wouldn't get a lot out of this one to be honest. <laughs> but I appreciate when a film in a certain genre does good does something right um and it kind of is good for that genre i can appreciate i can appreciate that um so anyone but you will that be your valentine's day top watch <laughs> well is that a question for me yes <laughs> oh definitely not like <laughs> I'll 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 watch Rye Lane for the fourth time. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of talking of that, so coming up next week, me and Billy are going to go head to head in a fight to the death over what <laughs> rom com is the best for Valentine's Day. This is the official, you know, the official list. We're going to decide what gets a bronze, silver, and gold medal in the rom-com world and we've got some good picks you know i think between us oh, we do. this is going to be a hard battle but um i'm telling you now billy you're going to lose so you know just putting <laughs> i could say the same for you putting that out there putting it out there um for a starter i mean i have rye lane on my list you didn't get there quick enough so I know. I you, you snapped up two that I very much could have picked, but I'm also happy with my three. So. Okay. Well, you're going down. I'm yelling timber. You better move. <laughs> you better run. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm, so sc- I'm so scared. <laughs> Pitbull makes everyone scared. Um, right. And that's it um, for this week. But please tune in next week for our Valentine's Day special. It's going to be a good one. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to take you down. I'm ready to take you down. <laughs> and on that note, thank you for listening. Please uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, leave us a review on, po- on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we will be back next week. Bye.
Bye.